Frisco podcast. To learn more about UR Frisco, please visit upburnfrisco.com. And the, guys, the, the Lord's been moving in my heart in a, just a beautiful way. I don't know if he knows how to move in any other way than a beautiful way, right? His kindness and... and uh, Ashley and I, two nights ago, we went and saw The Jesus Revolution, the movie. It is going to be deeply impactful for anyone who watches it, especially people who have already tasted and seen of the goodness of God. Um, But it was extra especially impactful uh, for me because I grew up in the Vineyard Movement, And the Vineyard Movement was birthed from Calvary Chapel, and and it made mention of the Vineyard Movement at the very end of the movie. And so I grew up hearing stories like Lonnie Frisbee and and Chuck Smith and John Wimber and the the prophets that came from... Those those were like my heroes. And growing up in the the Vineyard Movement was very much about um, removing the pretense from church coming as you are, loving people exactly where they're at. John Wimber would preach in a, like a, a Hawaiian shirt and no shoes sometimes. And he was, I mean, in front of thousands of people and the spirit of the Lord would come upon him. He, they'd give words of knowledge and see healing and people were just allowed in. They were just, there, was no, there was no like bar that people had to meet in order to walk through the doors and encounter God. And that movie just moved me so much again to like the simple uh, power of love and, and, and the devotion that that inspired in people's hearts, the transformative love of Christ and, and the, the baptism scenes in that movie were so, so powerful. And I know a lot of us... Um, Uh, You know, 50% of us would say, like, our baptism was super powerful and super memorable, and 50% would say, I just got dunked in water, but I did it, you know, out of obedience to God. But the thing is, like, that's what they knew to do. They just knew that, like, they had a body of water. The Bible encourages getting dunked. (laughs) And so they went and did it as as a display a public declaration that their old life is over and their new life is beginning. And I just feel really, really tender um, and just extra lovey-dovey, if you will. And I, I love this season of Lent because we're, we are almost preparing our hearts to... Uh, walk this path towards the revelation of Christ on the cross. We're preparing our hearts to, to witness all over again the, the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus in the weeks leading up to Easter. I've been just talking about the reconciliation plan of God, and, and today is, is no different, and, but I'm always putting a spin on things, right? And, you know, so far we've, we've talked about how um, we started all the way back with the serpent's deception in the garden and God protecting Adam and Eve from eating of the tree of life so that they weren't living forever in a broken state of fear and shame and control. 
and the promise that a seed would come from a, the woman who would end the reign of the serpent. We talked about Jesus being that seed coming to destroy the works of Satan. And at the same time, because Jesus is really good at multitasking, he is able to um, free us from a lot of our fear-inducing concepts of what the Father is like. We talked about God's redemptive plan to reconcile and gather all the scattered nations through Abraham's seed, which consequently, spoiler alert, is also Jesus, so that all nations could be his inheritance again. We talked about how uh, death came through a man, and so life had to come through a man. Death would be undone by a man. This is uh, citing Romans chapter 5. It says, in Adam all died, so in Christ all are made alive. One offense resulted in condemnation to all mankind, so one act of righteousness results in the justifi justification of life to all mankind. See, ever since the garden, Satan had a boast over God. And this is what his boast sounded like. You made these children to be objects of your affection. And you placed them in paradise where it was so easy to walk with you and to love you. And they chose me. That boast was ringing in the heavens until Jesus came along. Because the first Adam he failed in paradise, but the last Adam, he stood in hell. When it was so hard to obey God, it was not the garden. It was the darkest season in human history when one would come and where Adam had dropped the ball, he picked it up and ran and he carried us with him into the heavens. And now we're in a lifelong process of repenting of, from believing that the tree Adam ate from is more powerful than the one Jesus died on. So this week I wanna keep on exploring the redemptive plan of God. And I want to talk about his justice. We have a, a knee-jerk reaction when we say God is love. And it sounds like this. God is love, but he's just. God is love, but. And the love but disease infects the church <laughs> as if his justice was warring against his love. Or it's like his justice is this drive within him that's competing with his kindness. So I want to talk about what his justice is like, and I'd love for you guys to go on a little journey with me, and I want to shine a light on what I would call the punishment paradigm that we hold towards God. You know, uh, it's been really windy recently, and the wind knocked down 
all these branches, like these little old dead branches on the big trees around my property. And so last Saturday, I spent like an hour you know, just cleaning up. I'm picking up all these sticks and I'm, and I'm going to mow the lawn. There's no grass to be mowed, so I just call it vacuuming the lawn. You guys know what I'm talking about? Dudes, you know what I'm talking about. You've got the bag filler and you're just vacuuming up all the leaves. Feels so good. <laughs> And I just, I made a big pile of all these, all this debris that needed to be um, chucked, just thrown out to clean up our yard. Um, 3,500 years ago, Moses would have murdered me for doing that. Let that sink in. It's Saturday, brother. You're not supposed to be sweating, and you're certainly not supposed to be picking up sticks. This is straight from Numbers 15. A guy was caught picking up sticks on the Sabbath. And they asked Moses, what do we do? And Moses said, God says, put him to death by stoning him. You guys are looking at me like a cow at a new gate. Like, what's going to happen next? Like... <laughs> <laughs> okay, that, that, that really happened in Numbers 15. Let's fast forward about 1,800 years, and Jesus is walking along. John chapter 5, he sees a man crippled for 38 years. But it's the Sabbath. What does he do? He heals that man. And he encourages him, he tells him to take up his mat and walk, which is also breaking the Sabbath. So not only did he break the Sabbath, but he's a contagious Sabbath breaker. <laughs> Seven times Jesus breaks the Sabbath. And every time the lovers of the law want to kill him. And they set out to kill him. And then Jesus answers them. This is Jesus' defense. And he said, I only do what I see dad doing. So, so the father was condoning this breaking of this rule. And then in John 5, 39, you can put this one up there. This is like one of my life verses. This is, this is key. This is like a... Um, a Rosetta Stone of Scripture. This is Jesus talking to the experts of the Scriptures, and he says, you search the Scriptures, or it actually says you diligently search the Scriptures, or you painstakingly search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. The Jewish leaders were under a spell because they were using the book of God without the heart of God. There is no more powerful witchcraft in the world than the Christian religion that justifies doing horrible things in the name of God because we have a scripture that we are certain means one thing, but we've never read it through the eyes of Jesus. 
the damage that we've done. The damage we've reached, Jesus. But take heart. This is 2 Corinthians 3.6. This is wonderful. This is Paul. I can imagine he's just like rejoicing when he writes this. He says, he has made us competent ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, because the letter brings death, but the spirit gives life. People who knew the book wanted to kill the author of the book. People who had a good reason based on a scripture wanted to kill a woman caught in adultery. But there's the Lord kneeling down in the same dust that he made that woman from, remaking her in that very moment and showing us the justice paradigm of God is all within the power of mercy. See, we have a bad addiction to punishment and we justify this addiction to punishment through a certain interpretation of many different scriptures and it's well-meaning. I don't believe that anyone out there who is an angry Christian is trying to purposefully do a disservice to scriptures. I just think that they're under a spell. They're under a, de a deception. Um, so God is just. So what does his justice look like? Is it retributive or is it restorative? Another word is, is it punitive or is it reconciliatory? Is he a punishing God, or is he a restorative father? A couple weeks ago, after Sunday service, I, this was probably two months ago, I wasn't actually feeling all, like, very saintly this Sunday morning. And, you know, you come to church not feeling saintly, not feeling holy, and he reminds you of who you are. It was one of those mornings. You're like, yeah, that's today. <laughs> <clears throat> and uh, I needed to be in another place on the other side of Dallas, and I didn't have much time to get there, so I started to get a hankering for gas station tacos, which can be a great move. <laughs> or a not so great. Like, some of y'all know what I'm talking Like, the best taco you've had all year came from a gas station, and, like, you're trying to find your way back there. It's like a... <laughs> You can't even remember where it was. <laughs> All you remember is the glory of that taco. And sometimes it goes sideways, you know. A Sunday delight turns into a Monday surprise. Um, <laughs> and so I stopped for some gas station tacos, and it's not in a great part of town. I pulled up to some people peddling their wares, and I'm like, some days I just don't have patience, you know what I mean? But this day I was like, oh, let's smile at these guys and see what they're all about. And, <clears throat> and this one guy is trying to sell shoes. I don't know where these shoes came from. And I was like, hey, man, 
They're not my size. They're not the size of anyone in my family, which is crazy because we have seven people in our family. But um, so I'm not going to buy your shoes. But I mean, tell me your story. What are you doing? And he's like, oh, I'm trying to make about $40 a day because that's how much it costs to stay in this, like this, the cheapest motel around. I just got out of jail. And he's telling me his story. And I like this because most people aren't going to just offer up, I just got out of jail. So I like this guy. And you know what came over me is I, I, didn't, I didn't go to a lot of the uh, traditional evangelical approaches that I've been trained in. I just said, hey, you know the only difference between you and me is I didn't get caught. <laughs> See, I could have stood at this place of... Um, righteousness and talk down to him about this is how you can live a better life. But instead, I, I felt like getting, getting as low as I could. This is the Lord, okay? Sometimes he just comes on you and you're not an idiot anymore. <laughs> and I just said to him, hey, you know, I, Actually, I went to church today feeling like a failure and thinking that I, I deserved uh, punishment. And I heard the Lord say, you're a good son. He said that to me, and it changed everything in a moment. And the same mercy that he has for me, he has for you. And, and the topic of mercy opened up his heart to me, and we kept on talking and had a good 15-minute friendship. And... Um, I think that when we start to look at our ideas of punishment, I, I think that punishment, like you've done something wrong, and so you've got to pay. So punishment often is like, it's like scratching poison ivy, right? Right? It feels so good to dish it out. It feels so good to scratch that poison ivy. You know what I'm talking about. Like that deep itch, some of y'all are getting itchy right now when I'm talking about it. Like, but when you scratch poison ivy, you end up with a bigger problem, don't you? It spreads. And the more we use punishment, the more we use punishment to try to treat a disease, the more that disease spreads until your whole body is covered in sores. But scratching the itch seems logical. So what do we need instead? of scratching poison ivy. We need Fuller's soap. We need the cleansing blood of Jesus, don't we? I have great news. There is a balm in Gilead to heal. There's a balm available for us right now to heal. You know, because God, just like the rest of us, God cannot punish a disease out of someone. Have you guys ever tried? To punish an addiction out of a wandering child. To punish bad behavior in hopes that it changes their heart. But we think to ourselves, well, someone's got to pay. Someone's got to suffer. The scales of justice must be leveled out by the pounds of flesh. Let me give you an example of how addicted our society is to punishment. Especially in the US. 
when it comes time to execute a prisoner and they're walking them down the hall, they're preparing them for the needle, it is so terrifying. It's so terrifying that often this death row inmate, they have heart attacks and they die. Well, we have protocols to revive them so that they can die at our hand because a heart attack is too good for them and they have to suffer at our hands of justice. I'm not making political statements here. This is far too complex for me to even dip my toe in the waters of justice reform. That's not what we're talking about today. But suffice to say, our judicial system in America mirrors the theology of America. States with the most executions have the most Christians. The U.S. has the highest rate of people being punished by prison of any country in the entire world. Again, this is a, a very complex problem. I'm not making political statements at all, but India has four times our population and has one quarter as many people incarcerated. So this is very complicated, and so I'm going to say something really simple instead. We will manifest the God that we believe in. we will manifest the justice system that we believe is God's system. And if we use fear to control our kids and our churches, we will end up advancing the kingdom of darkness and perpetuating the, the disease and scratching the poison ivy itch. Can you put up that slide? Y'all having fun? All right, good. I felt like I came loaded for bear today. <laughs> <laughs> first john chapter four isn't this a great chapter Woo! he loved us first mm. okay john the beloved makes sure to tell us the identity of god the ontology of god the essence of god the very core motive of yahweh himself it, and he says twice that god is love And there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. Fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is unable to fully love. And so if you work this reality kind of in reverse, like if we fear punishment, if we fear the retribution of God, then we won't be able to freely love him. You guys following me? Doesn't it seem important then to tear down the punishment paradigm that we could freely love God more than we ever have? Yeah. Pastors don't often address this because unfortunately we've been raised with this hand-me-down dysfunction that controlling our behavior is the path of righteousness. And there's no better behavior modifier that we know of than fear. Brothers and sisters, we, let me put it like this. God is better than that. 
if we have to fear his punishment in order to follow him, is he worthy to be followed to begin with? Isn't he more lovely than that? Isn't his grace and kindness irresistible? Isn't his gentleness what makes us great? Isn't his kindness the thing that leads us to repentance? But self-help Christianity is laden with the ideas that we are moving either further or closer to God depending on our bad or good works or how many fruits of the Spirit we're manifesting. And there's this Richter scale on your closeness to God that depends on your behavior. This is the essence of religion. I'm trying to put my finger right on the heartbeat of it because here's the thing. As a pastor, if I don't convince you that you have this disease of distance from God, then I can't sell you the treatment of religion. I can't peddle the painkillers of empty rituals that take the edge off the feeling of the distance that you carry. We having fun still? And as a pastor, what am I supposed to do if I can't manipulate the church into doing the rituals that constitute most of American Christianity? I guess I'm just going to... I'm going to have to trust that the drink of God's love that I drank that intoxicated me will intoxicate you also. And together, compelled by love, we will outwork every worker there ever was. Our carefully crafted strongholds of religious striving crumble when we remove the log of fear and we build once again on the foundation, the cornerstone of God's love, which is perfectly revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 10.4 says it like this. We have weapons. They're not carnal. They're mighty. What are they for? They're for tearing down. They're for tearing down every false idea about God. People who get this revelation of the loving father who doesn't need to be appeased, we only wish that we could get the years back where we unhappily followed an unhappy God. Pastorally speaking, this is the source of so much joy and freedom. If you're thinking, brother, you're going out on a limb here, I'm going to say, brother, I'm going down to the deepest root we have. Ten years ago, I started this journey, and I've loved God more every day. I've fallen more in love with him and other people. I've walked in more freedom and joy and power as this revelation of the kindness of the Father worked its way through every operating system of my brain, and I would love for you to go on that journey with me. Many months ago, I, I needed to get picked up by an Uber driver 
at 4.30 in the morning to make a really early flight. Does anyone in here have a good personality at 4.30 in the morning? No. I need to lay hands on me if you do. My, my children will thank you. I was thinking, I'm going to wake up you know, seven minutes before this Uber driver gets here. I'm going to brush my teeth. I'm going to walk out the door with fresh clothes, and I'm not going to talk to this person. They're going to drive me to the, I'll figure out how to rest, you know, on the way to my destination. And, and so the, she came, this, this female Uber driver pulled up to the house. I got in, and she asked me what I do. And I thought, this is... This is the perfect opportunity to drive in silence the rest of the way. Because if I tell her I'm a pastor preacher, she won't have any other questions. That'll be the end of the conversation, right? Oh, I'm a preacher. Cool. <laughs> but I know, that, I know from experience from evangelical pursuits of the past that if I say I'm a recording artist and a life coach, then it opens up all sorts of conversations. They're like, tell me more. But of course, you know what I said this morning. I'm a preacher. <laughs> and I thought that would be the end of it. But this was her, her response. Angrily, she said, are there any kids in here? Yeah, there are. I won't say what she actually said. <laughs> My dad is a Baptist preacher, but I don't believe any of that BS. And I was like, whoa. And you know what popped out of me? Without a thought. Without a thought. I mean, I had no personality. I didn't want to be talking. Holy Ghost comes on me. And I said, that's because you've only heard a lie that God was so angry with you and everyone else that he had to kill someone. So he killed his own son so he didn't have to kill us. And now the father tolerates you. That's because you've heard the lie that God was so angry with you and everyone else that he had to kill someone, and so he killed his own son so he didn't have to kill us, and so now the father tolerates you. You've never heard that you have a dad and a big brother who went to the ends of the earth to save you together from the enemy of your soul and redeem you from slavery. God is a dad who would do anything to get you back. You know what she did? She goes, what? 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 What, what is this? What is this? And I said, that's the Holy Spirit. You're feeling him again, aren't you? And she's swerving off the freeway. In a 70 mile an hour zone, we have slowed to 40 miles per hour and the white line that we're not supposed to cross is in the middle of our vehicle. And she's, what, what, what is this? God. And I said, you feel him again, don't you? And she said, yes. I said, you want to be his daughter again, don't you? Yes. 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 
And she said, God put you in my car. God, oh my God, God put you in my car. <laughs> and I said, from this day forward, you and I will be brothers and sisters with the same father. You are the delight of his eye. Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension accomplished so many things, but one of those things is not paying off an angry father and convincing him to finally love us. We killed Jesus, manifesting the punishing God that we believed in, but Abba raised him from the dead. We have all been the woman caught in adultery. We have all been Judas. We have all played Peter denying Christ. And we have all met his mercy everlasting. He doesn't just tolerate you. He passionately loves you. He perfectly disciplines you. And he forever holds you. He forever holds you. When you're unable to hold on. When you are faithless, he remains faithful. The Holy Spirit is here right now. And he's moving over the waters of our hearts. And he's creating something new. He's speaking joy and life over who you are. The Holy Spirit is here right now and he's kneeling down in the dust. And he's writing something with his finger on the dust of your heart. For God so loved. For God so loved that he sent his son so that we could see what the father is like again. Can y'all play something? You know, when John says, God is love, he's actually saying the most profound theological statement in all of scripture. Because for once, a man who knows God is telling us who God is, not just what God does. He dove down past all the ways of God and showed us the person of God. There's a theological term called ontology. It's the study of the essence of a being because ontos is essence. What John did in this moment is he told us who God is so that we can have the foundation to trust in all the things God does. 
He's love. And he's always been love because even before creation, he wasn't alone. You can't know that someone is love if they're alone. If they have no one to shower the love upon, how can we be certain that they're loved? So God wasn't alone. Before creation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in unbroken communion, we're in the divine dance of other-centered, self-giving love. So I have a question for you. Is God judge? It's a trick question. None of y'all are even nodding. God is love and he judges from love. Is God creator? Yes and no. God is love and he creates from love. It's what he does. Is God ruler? Yes and no. He is love and he rules from love. The reason at his core he's not creator is because he would need creation to be who he is and God doesn't need anything to be who he is. He's always been love. The reason he's love and not ruler is because he would need rules and people to follow his rules in order to be ruler and God doesn't need anything to be who he is. He has always been love. the foundation of all of our ideas about God has to get back to love.